You're listening to LawPod UK. It's a podcast that covers developments across all aspects of civil and public law in the United Kingdom. All the comments are current at the time of podcast publication. It's brought to you by the barristers at One Crown Office Row. And this edition is presented by Rosalind English. We're back with COVID-19, the lockdown, and now the déconfinement, as the French call it, as pubs reopen, limited social interactions are allowed indoors, and, much to the relief of some of us, dental practices were allowed to resume treating of their patients on the 8th of June. I have with me Len de Cruz, Head of Indemnity at the British Dental Association. Len, you have had plenty of experience of working with members of One Crown Office Row on cases before the General Dental Council, and it's a pleasure to welcome you to a slightly different platform with Chambers, LawPod UK. It's a pleasure to be here, Rosalind. First, I'd like to ask you about the chief lockdown period when the dental profession, both public and private, was presented with conflicting advice. The real issue was what the dental profession needed to do was fall into line with the government guidance on social distancing and essentially isolation. So the conflict that subsequently became a problem was who was giving the primacy of advice. Was it actually the chief dental officer? Was it the NHS? Was it CQC, the Care Quality Commission, or the General Dental Council? And there was a dispute about who actually was giving the advice about stopping treatment in the first place. But the idea essentially was that uh, treatment would be stopped. So the 20th of March, there was guidance from the chief dental officer, essentially to respond to the prime minister's requirement, essentially giving on the 12th of March, moving from containment phase to the delaying phase. And the idea, because of personal protective equipment shortages, the need to reduce contact. And in waiting rooms, the idea was to reduce the contact at that particular time. And in this early period, what was the position for people who urgently needed dental attention? In the early stages, one of the things that were required was to have no face-to-face contact. Because of the issue about social distancing, because of isolation, dentists were essentially said, you can't do face-to-face treatment. And of course, dentistry is essentially face-to-face. So what dentists were having to do was to triage patients, what was called essentially what they called AAA, which was advice, analgesia or antibiotics. So patients who were in pain or needed advice would essentially phone their own practice and hopefully would have had triaging by a dentist to give them their advice. And pretty well, three quarters of of patients who phoned up would be catered for by simply giving them some advice about a particular problem, giving them advice about painkillers, and then potentially antibiotics if appropriate. In some cases, depending on the extreme nature of the patient's conditions, presenting conditions, the only other option they would have is to refer them to what became urgent dental care centres. And those are being set up at a great rate of knots around the country in all, both in England, Scotland, Wales, Ireland, they're being set up. But obviously there was a huge time lag between the establishment of those urgent dental centres and actually patients requiring their service. Because as soon as you had lockdown, as soon as practice had lockdown, on average, most practices have maybe four or five emergency calls a day, depending on the size of practice. And so automatically those patients didn't have access. And when you routinely treat those patients, by them coming in, you wouldn't be giving them advice over the phone. You'd say, you've got a problem, come in. So it was a real challenge for dental practices to deal with those patients. 
I mean, how, how easy was it to distinguish between those patients who could be given the triple A antibiotics, analgesia advice, as opposed to being triaged for the urgent centres? Yeah, there is actually quite a lot of guidance out there from the Scottish guidance, it's SDSEP, I can't remember the, the initial, but it is a guidance, a recognised guidance on urgent care and emergency care and distinguishing between those. There was also guidance that came out quite quickly at that time as well about how you would give advice, what sort of advice you'd give in relation to treating minor sort of conditions, soft tissue, a condition patient got ulcers or discomfort, patients got wisdom teeth coming through, kids with erupting teeth, so simple sort of advice. So they've broken down quite carefully into what those conditions were and what advice would be reasonable to give. Then there was the analgesia. Again, quite clear guidance on analgesia and painkillers. And often the problem is patients don't normally use painkillers in the way they're supposed to use. They'll take a couple of tablets and then forget about using it altogether. And what you need to be aware of was actually building up the painkiller in your bloodstream. So you need to use it for a period of time. And you could also, if it was possible to do so, you'd use uh, neurofen or ibuprofen and paracetamol cycling together. So again, very useful advice and often patients will be happy with that. When you identified that they had a swelling, you prescribe antibiotics. The problem, again, there was a challenge between the antibiotics because if they were remote from you and the patient was shielding, they would then have to problems getting access to those antibiotics in the first place. And there was issues about contact or relationship with the pharmacies and collecting those. But, you know, within a few weeks, that was kind of sorted out. And so there was a challenge, but there was there's pretty good guidance as to what would be considered emergency care or urgent care. I remember because I attended your recent webinar on the lockdown situation, someone mentioned in the resuming practice webinar that dentists were getting whiplash turning from one document issued by indemnity to the next. Once again, going back to the conflicting advice, was that a situation throughout the lockdown period? There was some very standard guidance which came from good clinical guidance, which dentists signed up to very quickly. The problem arose pretty well around about end of May and the run-up to the actual opening of practice on June the 8th in England. Depending on what part of the UK you're in, you'll have different phases of approach. England, in the end, decided that from June the 8th they'd open up without any real phases. In Scotland and in Ireland and also in Wales, they have a phased approach. Um, and Scotland, for example, are moving on to phase three. And again, there'll be different criteria in terms of operating those practices. In England, they, they simply said you can open up on, on uh, June the 8th. The problem was the Prime Minister and the Secretary of State for Health announced that pretty well a week before. So there's a bit of a panic. And at that time, the, in the run up to June the 8th, there was guidance from the Faculty of General Dental Practitioners. There's guidance from the British Dental Association. There was guidance from the Chief Dental Officer, guidance from the Regional Officer from NHS England. So unsurprisingly, when these things all landed on the desks of dentists within a space of literally three or four day period, people hadn't got a clue what to do. Who would you listen to? Is it the Chief Dental Officer? Fortunately, the General Dental Council kept out of it and said, you listen to the guidance. So that was the problem. And what dentists were afraid of was if they got it wrong, 
what would the regulator say? What would the Care Quality Commission say, who inspect practices? What would the General Dental Council say, who obviously regulate the, the individual registrants? What would they say about it? And there was great, there has been great fear in the last sort of 10, 15 years about how draconian the General Dental Council has been. I think they've, they've changed their spots largely. But the concern was, if I get it wrong, I'll be straight in front of the General Dental Council. So that was where the concern was. And, and I think what the General Dental Council did quite rightly, right from the word go, from the end of March and all the way through in April, we're issuing very, very clear guidance about you as a professional ought to rely on your own professional skill and judgment, and we won't second-guess you, which is kind of a reassuring message from the General Dental Council, because if anybody's going to fear anything, it'll be the loss of their registration. So there was a lot of whiplash. There was a concern about which one to do. And it's only probably now in the last few weeks, the General Dental Council has been very clear on their own guidance about saying if these are well-thought-out processes, you need to follow national guidance. If you adapt them, you change them. But there are these, your alterations or your amendments are recorded, you'll be fine. I've actually been to my dentist since reopening and I was struck by the protocols. They're quite elaborate. Could you explain what the PPE and general infection control measures are? Yeah, so I think one of the cons- one of the issues is that if you look at risk management, the PPE bit is actually the the final barrier, as it were. In terms of if you're looking at eliminating risk, the first thing you can do in terms of risk assessment is eliminate the risk altogether, which is kind of what the government did. Eliminating the risk, don't come to the practice at all. So you're not going to get COVID in the first place. And then uh, there are sort of engineering type risk assessments. So things like having one-way systems, having screens in front of the reception desk. And then you finally move on to the sort of engineering controls, partly PP, but also things like the sort of high volume suction and other sort of mechanisms to reduce the potential virus. The problem for dentistry is unlike any other profession who are essentially going back to work, they're not doing the same thing. Whereas if you're working in an office, you go back to work, you may be socially distanced, but you're kind of doing exactly the same job. Whereas dentists are facing what's called these aerosol generating procedures, AGPs. When a dentist picks up drill, water sprayed, essentially it mixes with the virus that's being exhaled by the patient and you create an aerosol. And that aerosol disappears into the air and it takes a period of time to drop back down again. It's heavy, it'll eventually fall down to fall down onto work surfaces or onto the ground. It's that aerosol that's potentially dangerous to staff, to dentists. It's, not, it's obviously not dangerous to the patient because it's their aerosol, but it's dangerous potentially to the dentist, the staff uh, who are actually in their operating room. So in order to protect yourself, you need higher grade personal protective equipment, which is FFP2 and FFP3 masks, which is what FFP2 is, face filtering piece, which are level two and level three, depending on the filtration, the amount of filtration that's there. So FFP3 is about 98% filtration of the virus and bacteria. But also in addition to that, you actually have, it's not just a mask that goes on your face, you have to, it has to be fit tested. So fit testing is to make sure that the seal around your face is sealed. So there's no aerosol that can escape into it and you can inhale it. And that fit testing has to be done by a third party. It can't be done by you because what you're doing under the health and safety regulations to make sure this mask fits you, it's suitable and adequate for you. It's adequate for its purpose and it's suitable for you individually. So a third party has to come and check that the mask you've got suits your face. So now you imagine 11,000 practice in England requiring fit testing for every single member of their staff. And this is the, this has been the problem of actually going back to work is those practices are 
struggling to get fit testing done by a third party uh, who's who's accredited to do that fit testing and then having fit testing machines essentially they're just a hood basically and the, and the testing apparatus to do it that again is impossible to get and the costs are astronomically ridiculous they are they've gone from about 100 quid to 250 pounds and the masks themselves the high-grade masks have gone from two or three pounds to around about 10 pounds a mask so automatically you have a, 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 an impediment to actually buy the mask and use them. There are what's called non-aerosol generating procedures, non-AGPs, and therefore you don't need to use the same high-grade mask. So if you're doing a checkup, if you're doing orthodontic treatment, doing fillings that don't require drilling, then you won't need a, that high-grade. So the complexity for a patient going to practice is, what as a patient do you require? And then I'm going to have to put you in a certain slot, depending on what you're doing, an AGP or non-AGP. And also the other thing is this thing called fallow time. And fallow time is this idea conceptually that if you create this aerosol, the aerosol has to drop back down to the ground. And therefore, in order for that to happen, before you go back into decontaminating the room, you've got to leave the room. And that fallow time, according to Public Health England, PHE, says it's 60 minutes. So 60 minutes, frankly, is a huge amount of time. So you imagine a dental practice operating to say, right, I'm going to treat you, going to do your treatment. And as soon as you leave the room, I've got to close this room down for 60 minutes. I can't actually uh, treat anybody else in this room for another 60 minutes. Instantly, the access to dental care is reduced dramatically. And practices, obviously, in terms of business viability, will also be affected. So it is a, it is a massive challenge for, for dentists going back to work. So unlike it, as I said, unlike any other businesses, you go back to work, most people are doing it slightly differently. We're doing it vastly differently. I want to turn to something that you mentioned in the webinar, that you're already getting cases across your desk at the British Dental Association relating to potential cases around failure to obtain consent for certain kinds of treatment, particularly extractions carried out at, at the urgent dental care centres. Can you tell us a bit more about that? There's a real uh, challenge. It's kind of a, an interesting debate because... There's research now coming out of the treatments that have been available to those patients. So having gone through the three A's process, if they, they haven't responded to the antibiotics, the painkillers, and they get referred to the urgent dental centre, it's kind of almost last stage for these patients because they've been in a lot of pain for some period of time. So there's a bit of a, there's an element of, there's certainly an issue of consent because the patient, and it, it, it may be a desire by the patient to say, you know what, I've had enough, just take the tooth out. So there are, most of the research we're seeing suggests that a lot of treatment outcomes are extraction-based rather than more complex things like root canal treatment. Because of the complexity of doing root canal treatment, because of the time it takes to do it, and the PPE that you're wearing for it, means that there may not have been as many offers of root canal treatment. So the issue of consent is, is a moot point, and it's something we're concerned about in terms of patients now coming back to their practices and saying, yeah, I know you're, having, you're in the middle of doing root canal treatment, or I was preparing this tooth for a, for a crown or a bridge or whatever, and actually that tooth is no longer there, so what happened? And it's always taken out at the urgent dental centre. So, you know, so it's down to record keeping. The only way we'll ever find out about the discussion that took place will be about in relation to the consent, the options, the risks, the benefits. And in a sense, you know, we know in general medical care that lots of patients have had their treatment deferred, quite serious treatment for chemotherapy, for other treatments where actually the coronavirus has, has taken precedent of managing their managing other people's care in precedence to your own. 
And indeed, even if you wanted to have that treatment done, in the end, dentists will, will we're very aware of it, and the dentistry organisation is very aware of that risk management to actually say, if you work in an urgent dental care centre, you need to make sure you, you give them those, those options. And sometimes those options said, well, OK, I can't do the root canal treatment. I said, well, yeah, we can't do it here. It's either that or take the tooth out. And the patient's like, OK, fine, I'll just go back and I'll, I'll carry on with the painkillers or, or the antibiotics. So there are issues and, and it's difficult to be sure what was said and what was done. And it's, it'll be done to essentially the record keeping and the, and the discussion with the patient. But often the patient will simply say, just take it out, I've had enough. Yes, of course. How long do you predict the current protocols will be have to be followed? One of the interesting things is it's been related to the Faculty of General Dental Practitioners issued their toolkit. They didn't talk about aerosol generating procedures, they talked about aerosol generating exposures and what they kind of said, and they also related it to the threat level, the government threat levels. So when we went to lockdown as level five, it went down to level four as we released people, so we're, in, we're, in, we're now at level three. So potentially when we move to level two, which is essentially it's, it's no longer in the community, level one threat is it's, it, we just need to uh, vigilance around the international vigilance. So level two essentially is, is a, the point at which the, there is no COVID in the community. And, and at that point, I think those levels of PPE, the fallow period will drop. It's difficult to say when that's going to be because there's been spikes in various parts of the country recently. And so we're unsure where that, when that's going to be. So, and at the moment, the Public Health England, um, we're actually having a debate with Public Health England, the British Dental Association and various organisations to say, when we get to level two, which inevitably we will, what is it going to look like for practices? And one of the concerns we have is exactly the issue we're talking about, which was we don't want to have another situation where there's a whole lot of guidance from different organisations and nobody knows exactly what to do. So the Chief Dental Officer, Sarah Hurley, has taken the, uh, taken the lead and said, let's just sit down as a group of people, as a group of organisations that are issuing guidance to say, right, when it comes down to level two, what is it that we want? And a lot of it is dependent on Public Health England. They are the, and essentially the arbiters of what, based on scientific evidence, what should be the appropriate manner of operating in these practices. And in a sense, everybody else will fall into line, the General Dental Council, the Care Quality Commission, the British Dental Association, everybody else will say, well, uh, that's the, essentially the primacy of evidence. The problem is there is very little evidence for this. There's a lot of theoretical views about it, but nobody's actually done any evidence. Specifically, for example, we talk about the aerosol. We don't actually know if there's any live virus in that aerosol. We don't actually know if that virus is pathogenic to anybody in that room. We don't really know how long, if that aerosol does drop to the ground, whether it's infective while it goes down. So a lot of this is, is very theoretical and we're very much on the precautionary side of going back to work. And that's what's, that's kind of what's killing the return to dentistry because practices, it's too expensive to go back to work, essentially using all the, the PPE, the fallow time, uh, the, as you say, if you've got a small surgery, it's very difficult for you to operate. Can't close one surgery and operate another surgery. Only one or two surgeries, and for example, hygienists in particular struggle because most of what they do is aerosol generating procedure. They use ultrasonic scalers, which create an aerosol, and a lot of hygienists haven't been allowed. To, we're not even taking hygienists back to work, and so a lot of hygienists are unemployed. So it is. It's a real challenging environment for for dentists and their teams. Len, I think that's a very good place on which to end. Is there anything else that you feel we haven't covered? No, I think one of the things we're discussing this issue about, you know, the technology that might reduce that fallow period. And there are things like uh, fogging machines, there are UV lights, there's virucidal air conditioning units. And a lot of people are 
putting some store in these these devices to reduce the fallow time. Because for businesses, for a practice, the fallow time, this, this time where you have to close the surgery, is a significant impediment to a, a successful business. And so people invested lots and lots of money before they went back to practice. And we're really not sure whether that's really worth the money. And indeed, even for patient safety, people don't really know whether those things are, are worthwhile. As long as dentists follow the existing guidance about health and safety, you, you're not going to, you only, majority of transmission is by contact is by um, not by aerosols not by people talking or speaking it's literally by con- contaminated services uh, you pick it off the the tube train you pick it off buses pick it off from your trolleys in in your supermarkets in a dental practice everything is spectacularly clean so you're not going to get that from there so it's a for a patient going to dental practice it's a safe place to go yes indeed my dentist said well actually even before coronavirus we as dentists have to treat all patients as if they're infected with something. Well, thank you so much for coming and, and discussing the issues facing the dental profession. Very interesting to see what happens in the forthcoming months. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. LawPod UK is presented by Rosalind English and is produced by One Crown Office Row. For more editions of LawPod UK, you can subscribe to the podcast and recommend us to a friend. 